A couple of weeks ago, we saw that God promised Abraham that he would bless all nations through him. And we know that the life, death and resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. But things got off to a faltering start. And again, when Scott uh, spoke to us last week about Isaac and Ishmael, uh, it became even more apparent that God's promise uh, will be fulfilled But because of human sin, and last week the focus was on Abraham's wife, Sarah, uh, it's not going to be an easy road. It's not going to be straightforward. So eventually Abraham dies and Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, they come together to bury their father. And this unity between the two brothers gives us a glimmer of hope. It looks like things are coming together and then it all goes wrong again. But Genesis makes it clear that God's plan will keep grinding its way forwards in spite of all the complications. And this week, we're looking at the next generation in Abraham's family tree, Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau. And we've already heard about two sets of brothers, Cain and Abel, and Isaac and Ishmael. So you can probably guess that there's going to be a certain amount of tension And there's all kinds of things we could take away from this passage. We're going to focus on three things in particular. Firstly, breaking the cycle of sin. What does that look like? Secondly, the reality of conflict or strife, particularly within families. And thirdly, we're going to say something about being short-sighted. As we'll see, Esau was short-sighted. He failed to pay attention to the bigger picture. And that's a trap that all of us can fall into. So where are we going with this this morning? Well, three S's, sin, strife, and short-sightedness. Firstly, sin. We know that God promised to make Abraham into a great nation. But when his wife Sarah didn't conceive, Abraham took matters into his own hands and he married Sarah's slave girl, Hagar, an Egyptian. She conceived and gave birth to Ishmael. Ishmael was born as a result of Abraham and Sarah not trusting God. Now, admittedly, they did wait a very long time. But had they waited a bit longer, their family situation would have been far less complicated because Sarah did eventually become pregnant and she gave birth to Isaac. The Jewish people trace their lineage back to Isaac. The Arab nations trace their lineage back to Ishmael. So it's not unreasonable to uh, to argue that the conflict between Jews and Arabs that still rages today, uh, that conflict can be traced back to Abraham and Sarah's sin. Sin has massive repercussions because it can affect each subsequent generation. Uh, for example, if someone were to grow up in a violent home, there's more chance that that person might become violent themselves. Not necessarily, but there's uh, a higher chance. Uh, but the cycle of sin, any kind of sin, can be broken. And as Christians, I think we'd want to say that it ought to be broken. It must be broken. When I was traveling in China, I met uh, a young British woman who had grown up on a rundown council estate in the north of England. Her parents had never worked. Her grandparents had never worked. Now, people can be out of work for all sorts of reasons, often through absolutely no fault of their own. Uh, But this particular family had no desire to work. They were quite happy uh, to claim benefits and sit at home watching daytime TV. And this particular girl decided that she didn't want to live like that. And so she started applying for jobs. And she told me uh, that when her mother found out that she was applying for jobs, 
She looked at her as if she was stupid and said, what do you want to get a job for? You get everything you need from the government. But she paid no heed and she got a good living position in London. She was saving money and when I met her, she was traveling the world. Her family's generational sin was uh, laziness and lethargy and lack of imagination. But she broke the mold and did things very differently. And to a certain extent, that's uh, what we see with Isaac. At 40 years old, he married Rebecca. But Rebecca wasn't able to have children. And so we see history repeating itself. Abraham's, uh, uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, uh, was beautiful and barren. And uh, Abraham's son, Isaac, his son, Rebecca, was beautiful and barren. But unlike his father, uh, Isaac doesn't just get himself another wife and have a child with her. Isaac adopts a very different approach. He breaks a cycle. Verse 21 says this, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. And you might say, well, that seemed pretty easy. Isaac prayed. Uh, Rebecca became pregnant. It's not surprising he didn't get himself another wife. He didn't really need to. Uh, but in verse 26, it tells us that Isaac was 60 years old when Rebecca gave birth to Jacob and Esau. And we know that uh, uh, Isaac was 40 years old when they got married. So Isaac prayed with and for Rebecca for 20 years. For 20 years. Why did it take 20 years for their prayer to be answered? We don't know. The text doesn't say anything about that. Uh, why is it that some couple pray for children and it never happens? Again, we don't know. But what we do know is this. Uh, if our prayers are not answered swiftly or in the way that we might hope, it doesn't mean that God is against us. It doesn't mean that God is punishing us. Uh, so we must keep praying. Prayer is never wasted. Prayer is never wasted. And Isaac sets us a good example here because uh, I think our culture tells us that uh, intimacy is, uh, well, it has a lot to do with sex. Uh, but in reality, uh, it's far more uh, spiritual. The, one of the most important things that a man can do to build intimacy with his wife is to pray with her and for her and vice versa. For those of us who are married, uh, if we're not praying regularly with our spouse, then we really are missing a trick. Imagine if all the couples in the church were praying regularly together. Think of the impact of that. And it's not just about couples praying. We want us all to be praying, and we want us all to be praying uh, with other people. But we're linking this uh, back to Isaac and Rebecca. Seriously, praying together will transform our lives. It will transform our marriages. It will transform our relationships. Prayer is never wasted. And I uh, understand that it's not always possible to pray with your spouse. Your spouse might not want to pray. Uh, but if you're not praying with your spouse, you can at least pray for your spouse. So Isaac didn't follow the sins of his father, not in this instance, uh, not in this way at any rate. Uh, when Rebecca couldn't conceive, he didn't get himself another wife. He prayed and he prayed for 20 years. And as Christians, we need to do the same thing. If we see negative patterns of behavior in our family, sins that have been passed down from one generation to the next, we need to break the cycle. And we do that 
through prayer, through inviting Jesus into the situation, allowing the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives, no matter what it is that's getting passed down to us, whether it's unbelief or materialism, alcoholism, gossiping, racism, being lukewarm about our faith, whatever it is, we need to stop it in, it, in, it, in its tracks so that our children and the children of the church don't learn those behaviors from us. So that's breaking the cycle of sin in our lives and in our families. And the fact that Isaac appears to be doing that gives us another glimmer of hope before it all goes downhill again. Which brings us to the next S, strife. Sibling rivalry is a recurring theme in Genesis, and Isaac and Rebekah's sons, Jacob and Esau, are no exception. Verse 22 tells us that the babies even jostled or fought in their mother's womb. Anybody who has a brother or sister, I'm sure, will know something of that uh, rivalry that can exist, that tension uh, between siblings. My brother, Rob, is three and a half years older than I am, and we uh, used to fight all the time when we were younger. Uh, We couldn't even pass each other without having a little dig. Uh, and, And it got so bad that my parents bought us boxing gloves. Not something that I would recommend, but it seemed like a good idea to them at the time. Uh, But rather bizarrely, they only bought us one set. And both my brother and I were right-handed. So then we'd fight over who got the right right glove before we'd even got the gloves on. So I'm pretty sure that uh, boxing gloves did nothing to increase the peace in our house. Uh, And this sibling rivalry that we see between Jacob and Esau, which began in the womb. Uh, Rebecca asked God about all this excessive movement. And here's a reply, verse 23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. The two nations are, of course, the Jews who, are, who come from Jacob's descendants, and the Edomites, who are descendants of Esau. Uh, actually, Herod the Great, uh, who tried to kill Jesus shortly after his birth, was almost certainly an Edomite. Uh, So it goes to show that animosity recurring down through the ages. And we also see that the older will serve the younger. Esau will serve Jacob. And this is a total reversal of social and cultural norms, a, a culture that placed all the emphasis on the firstborn son. But God is not bound by our social conventions. So the twins are born, Esau is born first, and he's red and he's covered in hair, and then comes uh, Jacob, and he's holding on to Esau's heel. The name Esau may mean hairy, uh, but he was also called Edom, uh, which means red, so he's a red, hairy baby. And uh, the name Jacob means he grasps the heel, or, uh, well, it's a figurative way of saying uh, that he deceives, and we'll hear more about that in a moment. Uh, But names in the Old Testament are always important. And these two boys are very different characters. Verse 27 says this, the two boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. They're like chalk and cheese, these two. If we were to stereotype them, uh, Esau would be a total Neanderthal (laughs) and Jacob a complete mummy's boy. Uh, But then we read this. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob. What we see here is blatant favoritism. One of the great things about Genesis is that it highlights 
the fact that human nature hasn't changed in all the thousands of years since this was written. The family issues described in Genesis are very often uh, the same issues that families face today. Favoritism had a corrosive effect on this ancient family. And favoritism has a corrosive effect in many families today. Few things will cultivate resentment more effectively than favoritism. So by now we should be getting the idea that this family that God chose to work through, uh, Abraham's family, is not the perfect family. We're not dealing with the Waltons here. But God works in spite of human sin. He works through the mess and the muddle of human life. But it's quite encouraging, isn't it? It's encouraging because if God can work through this family, then God can work through our family. In fact, if we make following Jesus the priority for our family, and when I say family, that could be uh, two people, it could be 20 people. If we make Jesus a priority, then we begin to learn to resolve conflict. We start to deal with some of the issues that create tension. We learn to love more fully and to live more selflessly. We see in Genesis, families can be terribly destructive environments. Uh, They can be the source of great pain and hurt and anguish. Uh, But our families uh, can also be the place where we grow in godliness. Martin Luther described the family as the little church. The little church. Is that the way you view your family? It should be. And then, of course, we have our church family, which serves the same function, but on a different uh, on a bigger scale. But we need both. So finally, we come to short-sightedness. And as we've seen, there's no love lost between Jacob and Esau. And then then we read that uh, Jacob is at home cooking some stew and Esau comes in from the field famished. Uh, And he says to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. And here's where Jacob's name becomes relevant. He grasps the heel, he deceives, uh, because he responds by saying this. He says, first sell me your birthright. It's an outrageous proposal. In exchange for some stew, he wants his elder brother's birthright. The birthright of the eldest son would have included a double inheritance. So uh, property, uh, possessions, acreage, livestock. He'd get the family name. Uh, He'd be the head of the household. He'd get a blessing at the end of his father's life. All of this for a bit of stew. I mean, who would make that kind of exchange? Well, the answer is someone extremely short-sighted. Here's how Esau replies. He says, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? Now, I think we can safely assume that Esau wasn't literally about to die of starvation. If you can march into the house demanding food, you've probably got a little while to go. Uh, When I did the survival camp with the year 10s um, a few weeks back, the phrase, I'm starving, was one that I heard on a number of occasions, but um, I don't think anyone was in immediate danger of uh, literally starving. Uh, Esau was hungry, and to be fair, he'd probably gone well beyond the point where a well-fed 21st century Westerner would claim to be starving. But the problem is that he's completely focused on the immediate situation, so much so that he can't see beyond it. And so he's prepared to swear an oath selling his birthright to his brother Jacob in exchange for some bread and lentil stew. 
And verse 34 says that Esau despised his birthright. And we might say, well, no one would be foolish enough to cut a deal like that. But how easily we set aside something wonderful for something mundane and ordinary. The world in general despises Jesus and the wonderful inheritance that he offers to those who will follow him. The world doesn't want to know Jesus because the reward he offers is not instantaneous, is not immediate. To follow Jesus, we need to take an eternal perspective. Actually, when we turn to Jesus, we discover that our lives do change for the better. There is actually an immediate benefit, but we're probably not going to see that until we make that step of faith. For Esau, the meal is instant gratification. He gets to benefit right there and then. His birthright, well, that's in the future. Why should he be bothered about that? He's hungry, and that is a far more pressing issue. I think you'll agree it's incredibly short-sighted. And as Christians, we can make the same mistake. Relationship with Jesus, new creation, eternal life. I haven't got time for any of that. I've got to play the, pay the bills, plan the holiday, build my career, insert whatever it is that takes most of your focus. We may not consciously think that way, but the way that we live our lives can reveal that that is what is going on. Like Esau, we've got to eat. No one's saying that's not important. We've got to pay the bills, educate the children, maybe finish our own education. Uh, we want to get a job and bring in some money. Uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, any of that. But do those things loom so large in front of us that we can't see the bigger picture? Is there always something in our life that seems so urgent that nothing else seems to matter very much, including the things that are most important? and especially our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Esau despised his birthright. He lost it, and there's nothing he could do to get it back. But that is not the situation that we're in. Uh, If today we realize that we're focused exclusively on the material needs of this life, we realize that we are, in effect, uh, despising or forfeiting the uh, eternal inheritance that Jesus offers us, then all we need to do is repent and turn to Christ to surrender our whole lives to Jesus. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 to 4 says this, In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Esau despised his birthright. He forfeited his inheritance all for the sake of a paltry meal. Let us do the opposite. Let us embrace our inheritance by prioritizing our relationship with Jesus ahead of everything else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Uh, We thank you uh, that there is an inheritance kept in heaven for us. We thank you that as your children, we have uh, a birthright. We thank you that forgiveness and eternal life are possible. 
And we pray that we will, in our daily lives, be able to take an eternal perspective and to recognize the importance of each aspect of our life, but to recognize more than anything that our relationship with you is what counts. Our relationship with you is going to make a difference here and now, and it's going to make a difference forever. And so, Father, we pray that our eyes will be fixed on you as we go into uh, this week and as we uh, move on through our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.